America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know, one minute, one minute, okay. We everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Oliker, speaking to you from still actually somewhat sunny Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, also here in sunny Belgium. The end of August, uh, just about a month ago, after nearly 20 years of war, the United States withdrew its forces from Afghanistan, even as the Taliban, which U.S. and allied forces had ousted back in 2001, solidified its control of the country. The news has since been full of analysis and soul-searching about this very long war and what may follow now that it's over. We at Crisis Group have done some of this work, and I do recommend you check out our Afghanistan page for insightful analysis and ground truths and insights, both over the last two decades and today. One of the pieces that we published is an assessment of how Afghanistan's neighbors look at the conflict. And today we're honored to delve into this topic just a bit more with our guest, Ivan Safranchuk. Ivan, Dr. Safranchuk is a longtime watcher of Afghanistan and Central Asia. And he watches them mostly from Russia, though he travels to the region a good bit as well. He's here to talk to us about Russian and Central Asian perspectives on the evolving situation and his own analysis of uh, what might follow. He is a senior fellow at the Institute of International Studies at the Moscow State Institute of International Relations and a member of the Russian Council on Foreign and Defense Policy. Ivan, welcome. It's good to have you here. Good to hear all of you, and I greet you from also quite sunny city of Chebaksare on the Volga River. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. So Ivan, you have a new paper out in the journal Russian Global Affairs. It's available in English and in Russian, which is about Afghanistan's future and how it might be informed by its past and about Russia's and perhaps the United States' future interest uh, in that country. So the common take on Russia and how it's looking at Afghanistan right now is that it's simultaneously kind of happy to see the United States leave, at least under these terms, uh, terms that in some ways make its 1989 exit, which at least for a while left a functioning government in place, look pretty good, but that Moscow is also nervous about possible security threats emanating from an Afghanistan ruled by the Taliban, particularly if the Taliban has trouble ruling it. But it's been building ties to the Taliban for a number of years, and although the group remains banned and classified as a terrorist organization in Russia, the current relationship does appear to be cordial. So, Ivan, what do you think, uh, what would you say Russia wants from the Taliban now? I would still say that Russia wants something from Afghanistan, but if Taliban controls Afghanistan, and that's what many people expected already for a few years, finally to happen, and if the Taliban controls Afghanistan, then okay, it means the Taliban should deliver it. I think that there are a few basic points on on which the Russian policy is based uh, now and in the previous few years. Uh, First, Russia wanted America out of Afghanistan because at some point, actually, America stopped fighting terrorism and insurgency. And Russia was very much concerned that America may be shifting to more geopolitical agenda in Afghanistan and around Afghanistan rather than to clearly counter-terror agenda. 
with which Russia initially supported the United States. Second, Russia believes that Taliban is different from what it was 20 years ago. And by the way, Russia is not alone in this belief. I see a lot of American, European, Chinese, Japanese, well, experts from all around the world saying that Taliban is different, different, and different. Um, I would say that my point of view is that Taliban is not that different from what it was 20 years ago, 25 years ago when it took power in Kabul last time. I think Taliban is even more fundamental, I believe, (laughs) than it was 25 years ago. Moreover, they believe they are winners. They are winners after 20 years of very tough war. And they think they defeated America, the superpower. And why should you be soft if you believe that you stick to your ideas and with these ideas you defeat the superpower? What is the reason to be softer? (laughs) The reason is exactly to be even as a tougher believer in your ideas. Then, of course, under the pressure of the international community, and they may pretend to look softer, but I think that they are very fundamentalist. They want to build inside Afghanistan very tough regime. It will be a direct uh, rule of the Sharia laws, and, well, it will not look modern at all. However, the difference I still see is the difference which may be hard to explain, and that's why I will explain it with a comparison. I hope this comparison makes sense to your listeners. The comparison is between Lenin's or Trotsky's Bolsheviks and Stalin's Bolsheviks. Who is actually tougher, Stalin's Bolsheviks or Lenin's Bolsheviks? I would say that inside the country, Stalin's Bolsheviks are probably even tougher. But there is a difference. They are not fighting for the international revolution anymore. It doesn't mean they will not support anybody outside of the Bolshevik uh, territory. They can support some people in China, in Spain, and uh, and so on. But at least they are not making their stake on the international Bolshevik revolution. I think that is exactly that is what happened to Taliban. They they inside the country they will probably build the regime comparable, if not tougher, to what existed in the second half of the nineties. But they are not fighting for for international jihad anymore. So is that what Moscow is counting on? The Taliban may be horrible to the population of Afghanistan, but it's not going to be a problem for anybody else. As far as I understand, official Moscow believes that they will be both softer inside and they are not for international jihad. Although I remember some of Russian officials saying that, look, what you call horrible... (laughs) Uh, is okay for most of the population inside inside the country. Yes, it looks horrible from our standard. It's not modern, but the majority of the population inside Afghanistan will receive it and will be okay with it. I think that is the position of the official Moscow. My expert position is that probably that is true, but still, inside Afghanistan, there are already elements of the modern community. The question, I think, is very fundamental. It brings us back to very difficult questions Europe was discussing after World War II. Do we care or do we not care about what is happening inside a country 
if we think that that is that that is horrible <laughs> even if the majority of the population inside that country receives it it was very basic question which was long debated after world war 2 and then the idea came that actually if somebody is aggressive inside the country at some point it will become aggressive outside its its country and then half a century <laughs> of international politics and, and many, many foreign policy issues were built on this very basic thesis. I mean, it's not just that they'll become aggressive outside the country. There's a moral imperative. On the other hand, having a moral imperative to act doesn't mean that you know how to fix it, right? So there's always this risk that you will intervene and make things worse. I think responsibility, the concept of responsibility to protect is based on the idea that some aggressive minority in power makes something horrible to a substantial part of the population. Uh, however... Yeah, like women. Yes, like women. But I mean that in Afghanistan, we are coming to something different. The majority of the women inside Afghanistan will accept very tough rule without any questions. But there will be some groups very tiny groups if you judge by the size of the whole population very tiny groups of modern people women or men it doesn't matter and that's why i think it is comparable to other situations which we had in europe before world war 2 when a regime which is okay for the majority population makes something horrible to minorities and then do we care or would we not care? Or we say, well, but actually that's democratic to some extent because the majority supports it. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You talk about Russian view of the coming to Taliban. Presumably it was a bit of a surprise to them how quickly it all happened. So no one is quite clear, I think, anywhere in the world exactly what the Taliban are going to be. But from what you're saying, it sounds like you feel that Moscow has a view that the Taliban can run an independent country that will kind of be not a threat to them, that they won't have to intervene, that they can let matters roll. Do you think that is how it is? And uh, do you think that in the future that Afghanistan can genuinely be a geopolitically neutral space? My second point was that uh, Russia counted on Taliban changing substantially. And there is also uh, the third point. The third point is that Russia at some point realized maybe seven, eight years ago, that a lot of people talk to Taliban. Europeans talk to Taliban. America talked to Taliban in the second Obama term. The Chinese, the Japanese, let alone people from the Middle East. And Russia was probably the last defender of the position that you are there to fight terrorism. <laughs> you adopted counterinsurgency strategy. Why the hell are you talking to the insurgency if you wanted to defeat it? And then Russia decided, okay, that uh, things may change very rapidly. America may leave and we will be left alone with even worse situation than it was before America coming in. That's why we should talk to players on the ground. If everyone talks to them, we are part of the region, we should talk to them. And Russia started talking. And jumping into the to this game, maybe the last, Russia actually became very successful talking to the Taliban. And uh, I understand that from last year, probably, the Russian idea was that not that Taliban takes the power militarily, but that Taliban 
becomes part of some reconciliation. And there is a compromise government between the central government of Ghani, maybe without Ghani, but the government as such, the official government, the Republican government, uh, the Taliban and uh, the northern minorities, they somehow make a reconciliation and there is a compromise government, which is okay for the whole international community. And then the whole international community continues to, to fund it and everything is fine. So there is a power legitimate inside the country, a legitimate outside of the country, and there is international funds to, to fund it. The very fundamental idea which drives Russian policy is that instability produces risks, challenges, and threats, and stability brings peace, security, and probably development. We find out that stability not always brings development, but at least it brings some security. That's why Russia didn't want the collapse of the America of the pro-American regime in Kabul to lead to civil war. I think that is very important. Russia doesn't want instability. Russia is okay with whatever but order. But does it think that the Taliban can bring that stability? Uh, I understand Russia officially believes that it can. But I would stress that the idea was that there is compromised government <laughs> legitimate inside the country and nobody fights it inside the country because all major forces are in the government and legitimate outside of the, gov- of the country because the international community uh, would participate in this uh, reconciliation, would support this reconciliation and, and would continue to fund this uh, compromised government. We are not at this point anymore. And that's why probably Russia would now have to make steel more on Taliban as already independent force rather than part of the coalition government. So Ivan, in your paper, you talk about um, Afghanistan's historical role as a buffer. And you ask whether it can do that again. How feasible do you think that it is uh, for Afghanistan to be independent and, you know, and effectively neutral towards everybody else? And is that really what Russia wants? Or does Russia want some sort of influence there that to kind of leverage its um, advantageous position that it potentially came out of because it is one of the very few countries that's uh, cordial with the Taliban? It's hard for me. I cannot talk of the Russian uh, government, although I, I work at the university, which belongs to the government. I cannot talk on its behalf, I can only present my understanding of what the Russian government is doing. I think uh, that we are all at a crossroad. I cannot exclude that there will be a great powers competition over Afghanistan, with uh, maybe Russia, Pakistan, China being on the one side, and America, Europe, Japan, and the rest of the international community being on the other side. And I cannot exclude it. But my advice and uh, my recommendation is that Afghanistan should be nobody's territory, that it should be neutral and, uh, and should not be on anybody's side in the geopolitical game between great powers. That's the smart way to go for both whoever runs Afghanistan and for everybody else. But, you know, the problem here is that Afghanistan is not autonomous in any way. 
in economic or political or social, it's very much connected to neighboring regions. It's hard to be independent when you're dependent. These are very overlapping meanings. So neutral, is it independent? Or neutral is not necessarily independent. You may be connected to others, but still neutral. That's why I remind everyone that there is the function of buffer. Buffer is not isolated. (laughs) Buffer is connected to some elements which want to be disconnected. They do not want to meet directly, and that's why they need a buffer. But buffer itself is connected to those parts which do not want to be connected directly. Um, And I think that neutrality and dependence is best reconciled exactly in the notion of buffer. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and Hugh and I are talking to Ivan Safranchuk about Afghanistan, uh, Russia, and I'm about to ask a question about Central Asia. So, um, Ivan, of the Central Asian neighbors, uh, Tajikistan has been most open about its um, unhappiness with the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. Uh, The others have been somewhat more sanguine. Do you think any of the Central Asian countries are going to have their own independent policies towards Afghanistan, or will they follow Russia's lead? How much will China influence their positions? I see now, I would say, two clear views on Afghanistan and Central Asia, uh, represented by Taliban and Uzbekistan. Tajikistan is very concerned with the Taliban coming into power, and Uzbekistan is... uh, is optimistic. And actually, they come from the the same region. Both these countries wanted the central government of Ghani to be successful. But when it collapsed, they have different attitudes to how to think about this collapse and its consequences. So Tajikistan is concerned with the Taliban, and Uzbekistan is very, is very optimistic. Other countries of the region, I think, have very mixed views. But I think that all these countries have the same basic thinking like Russia. They want order inside Afghanistan. They do not want civil war. And then the difference in their positions comes from how much they care about uh, what is happening inside Afghanistan. Because the Tajik community inside Afghanistan is the biggest minority. (laughs) So Tajikistan, Tajiks, in particular young Tajiks inside Tajikistan, are very attentive to what is going inside Afghanistan. They do not want Tajiks to be suppressed. They want solidarity with Tajiks. And they send this message to the government of Tajikistan. Uzbekistan, I think, is more acceptive to whatever happens inside Afghanistan. If there is an order on the regional level, railroads can be built, Access to Pakistan can be provided, and economic projects like that are implemented. Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan, I think, have less clear views on this. These are the two extremes represented by Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. Ivan, you talked at the beginning about how Moscow was worried about the U.S. tendency in Afghanistan to move towards a more geopolitical agenda. And of course, there's always been a worry in Moscow about America's intentions or ambitions in Central Asia as well. Has what's happened in Afghanistan given Russia a new mandate or a new opportunity to strengthen its role in Central Asia? 
That is a very tricky question because I think there are two narratives. They are not competing narratives, but they are not really consistent narratives which exist in the Russian foreign strategy. One is Russia should extend its influence in various region situations. So America is withdrawing and then Russia should take more influence. We see this is a very general idea which is applied to various regions, Latin America, Middle East, Asia, and so on and so on. Within this idea, Russia should extend also influence in Afghanistan. And Russia, maybe together with China, should demonstrate to the West how actually you should do things right. You did them wrong and how things can be done right. For example, we have already example like that. For example, nearly simultaneously, the West acted in Libya and Russia acted in Syria. And in Libya, we have disaster. In Syria, we have, okay, Disaster. Some order. But also disaster. In Libya? No, in Syria we also have disaster. <laughs> okay. How would you how would you qualify it? Half of the population lost their homes. I think no one won in Syria. Russia looks competent in Syria. Syria is a disaster, but Russia looks competent. Okay, I would say Russia believes that uh, the situation in Syria is much better than the situation in in Libya. And that is the belief that Russia can act in difficult regions better than the West. And if to follow this logic, then Russia should extend its influence in, uh, in Afghanistan. But at the same time, there is another very basic idea or narrative for the Russian foreign strategy, which is to define borders of, let us say, privileged Russian interests, economic, political, so the zone of ours those who live with us in the same geopolitical and economic community. And for that, you actually need to have geopolitical, economic, and also a sort of civilizational borders to define between ours and, and not ours. And for what? For about three generations, Amudarya the border between uh, Uzbekistan and Afghanistan and Tajikistan and Afghanistan was not only a state's border, it was also a civilizational border. To the north were people, okay, you can call them Soviet, whatever, in negative terms, but what is positive in that, these were people which were brought in broadly European system of education. They read Russian classical literature, European classical literature. They knew European history actually better than Asian history and so on. So they were part of the broad Europe exactly because Russia established this civilizational border. And I think that these are two very different, these are not exactly consistent narratives. One is that you put a line of your geopolitical, economic, political community and you make a civilizational border. And the other line is that you are going to uh, and you are extending your your interests deep to the south. Because clearly it's, it's hard to make, it's possible, at least hard, to make Afghanistan part of, uh, of extended Europe. Central Asia is considered part of the broad Europe. 
Afghanistan not. And I think Russia cannot basically decide what is more important, to extend the interests to different territories, to difficult different regions, or to consolidate a community of uh, politically and geopolitically and civilizationally like-minded peoples. Olga's thinking about imperial legacies and different ways of uh, managing one's empire and the lasting results for generations. This is, uh, yes, you can put it as a conflict between something what is an empire and something what is a federation or confederation. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Does the emergence of such a strongly Afghan Taliban or independent, as you put it, entity across the Amudarya bring the Central Asians conceptually closer again to Russia? They are divided on this because on the one hand, they have very basic idea. They want more independence from Russia, political, economic, geopolitical independence, while Russia wants them exactly the country to be more connected, to be more like-minded with Russia. And that's why for Central Asians, the southern route of diversification, economic and infrastructural diversification is very important. Uh, And that's why they see the south as opportunity. On the other hand, of course, they are afraid from the security perspective. Not afraid, but they are concerned at this point. Elites in these countries do not want to become like Afghanistan in their internal order. So they want to be connected, but they want to be different. But of course, everyone keeps in mind, what if at some point in 20 or 25 or 30 years, actually we will not be anymore part of the broad Europe, but we will become more like Afghanistan. The current elite doesn't want it. That's very clear. But at the same time, they do not want to defend their modernity at the expense of losing opportunities, economic and infrastructural opportunities, which they see on the South. So on the one hand, to put it simple, geopolitically, they want to escape from Russia. And the only clear escape for them now is to the South. But the ultimate price they may pay for it in a generation is to lose the level of modernity they have now, which is a legacy from the Soviet Union and the Russian control. Do they think with the Taliban in place, do Central Asian states uh, and their leaderships and their elites feel there's going to be more opportunities for economic connections than there have been up until now? Yes, Uzbekistan strongly believes the Taliban can bring order, there will be no civil war, and that will allow railways, roads, trade, and all these big projects. All the things that 20 years of U.S. presence did not allow. Yes. I hear irony in your tone. I fully share what is behind this irony. For me, that is also eyeball-raising. Look, guys... You, you think that with America in, this did not happen, and with America out, this is somehow going to happen. But when they positively say yes, I don't know how to argue. It's only that, okay, time will show. But that is what they believe. 
And this belief is very China-focused. So that's what I was going to say. One possible answer to the raised eyebrows is the answer is China. Is the answer China? Why will China play a big role? This is very widespread expectation in the region that China will play a very big role uh, in Afghanistan and around Afghanistan and will fund multi-billion projects in the Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. Do you think that will happen? Uh, I think that I have doubts, but I think that we don't know for sure because uh, we do not really understand what is China now. It's very clear that China has been changing internally and it's, and also its uh, strategic motivations and foreign policy motivations has been changing in something like five years uh, very dramatically. But I am not sure with we understand uh, where exactly China is on the trajectory of this change. Do they still want to get connected to the international community and extract, as they did in the last decades, all the benefits from the international systems? Or they want to go into loneliness, (laughs) into the strategic loneliness and build their own parallel system? We don't know. I still believe that although China is moving to more strategic autonomy, it still pays attention to the international system. And it wants uh, the continuation of the globalization as it existed. It wants uh, the continuation of the international system. And that's why China will not too openly antagonize itself with the international system. I was going to say, so far, no one has recognized the Taliban. I think we are now talking about very wide spectrum of what is non-recognition. For example, America doesn't recognize Taiwan as a state, (laughs) but clearly there is a high level of relations, including military relations. But the international community may cooperate with Taliban, even without full political recognition, or the international community may say, okay, You're on your own. You do what you want inside the country, then we do not fund it. You're on your own. I don't know what is going to happen. It may, or the game may be okay, we will cooperate with you because we want to engage you and we want to change you a little bit through this engagement and so on and so on. We don't know which position will prevail. But with these ifs, if the international community chooses the position of non engagement, and non-recognition of Taliban. And if in China the mood prevails not to antagonize too openly with the international community, then I think China will focus on humanitarian assistance to Afghanistan, but will not go to multi-billion investment. With different answers to the previous ifs, Yes. If, for example, the international community recognizes uh, the Taliban uh, regime, China will be glad to to invest. It will be very propagandic and it will be maybe extensive as humanitarian assistance, food, medicine, and, and so on and so on to prevent humanitarian catastrophe. And China will sell it to the international community as We are a responsible member of the international community. We make everything so that these people are not just dying and so on and so on. 
but I doubt that they that in such situation they will make real multi-billion investments into railroads and various infrastructure. So, Ivan, thank you. Uh, we are out of time, but I think this has been a really rich and valuable uh, discussion. And just want to thank you for joining us. Listeners, we hope uh, you also enjoyed this wide-ranging and topical conversation. If you want to learn more, you can read Ivan's paper in the Russian Global Affairs Journal. That's globalaffairs.ru. That's easy enough to find. You should check it out, his other work, which is available in various places he's been affiliated with from the Moscow State Institute for International Relations, to the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, to Yale University. And for Crisis Group's own work on Afghanistan, as well as Olya's uh, contribution to our round 360-degree uh, view of what uh, all Afghanistan's neighbors are thinking about it, and our other work on Central Asia, do check out our regional pages on our Crisis Group website, and you can find that all on crisisgroup.org. You should follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter if you don't already. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope. And I'm at Olya Oliker. Also check us out on Facebook and Instagram where Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. And please do share this episode on Twitter or tweet to us about what you've liked or not liked about the podcast. Uh, we will be paying attention and listen. And you can also reach us through podcasts at crisisgroup.org. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe, Europod. Check it out to listen to some of the others. And many thanks to Europod's producers, Bull Media, and our own coordinators, Rebecca Zerhun Asifa and Megan Corsano, who make sure that Oli and I get to the starting line every time. Biggest thanks, as always, are to you, our listeners. Uh, looking forward to yet another fascinating conversation in two weeks. Goodbye. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. <laughs>